Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Too. It is great. Isn't that a, that's a South Park reference, I guess, from years back. Um, what's going on? Uh, we're in the, it feels like we're in the middle of like the slog time of winter, just started Lent in the church world. How are you guys doing? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is sick. Um, my computer didn't work this morning. I have a list of things to complain about, but I feel like I'm supposed to say things are great. Things are great. How are you guys? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm ready for the sun to come back. It has been gray here in Houston. Now it's also like 68 degrees outside, so you can't complain right. too much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it gets, you know, I don't think I would do well in the Pacific Northwest. and It's felt a little mm-hmm. bit like that here the past couple of weeks. Um, Spring break has started. My uh, wife is off with my eldest son doing some college visits, which is kind of amazing. And my um, my mom, the illustrious Hillary Heyman, is in town to help out with the uh, the younger two kids while I'm holding down the fort. Ooh, shout so out to Hillary. Shout out to Hill yeah. the Thrill. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Well, Sarah, if I may be so bold, I think that what you really just need to do is wash your face. Oh my word! Today, that <laughs> I do, I I make the joke, um, yes. because today we are going to talk. Which every man is like, "What? What are you talking about?" Apparently, We're, every man and the- all the girls are like, "Here we go." <laughs> there is a phenomenon out there called uh, uh, Rachel Hollis, who is an author and a uh, lifestyle. Hollis influencer and she has a book mm-hmm. called girl wash your face which mm-hmm. i've seen everywhere basically i asked mm-hmm. my wife about it too it's 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 hard to overstate the popularity of this book what is so i've learned um not in not in male world i i gotta say no one I, <laughs> none of the guys i talk to know this but i've seen it everywhere and it's 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 uh i guess it's been on the number one amazon uh, sort of seller for personal growth and Christianity, as well as women's Christian living, for like a year. Uh, a million solid, copies. Someone called her sort of the 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 denizen of what's of curated imperfection, or what Sarah you used to call, I think, bless this mess ism. Um, yes. But today, uh, she's got a new book coming out called "Girls Stop Apologizing: A Shame-Free Plan for Embracing and Achieving Your Goals," and it just just you know, in time for Lent. I honestly, I, I always hesitant to do something too too much of a you know we didn't we have a call out episode a few weeks ago, but this is this has crossed the sort of Rubicon into our <laughs> national conversation. And Sarah, you forward did um an article from the gospel coalition of all places yes yes i Um, did i wasn't expecting to receive that from you and then i read the article and it's really really well done um sarah why don't you give us a little introduction to rachel hollis and what what that means not just the person but the phenomenon so i do want to be honest i never read the book because 
as soon as people I'm friends with on social media posted girl wash your face, I literally thought they were talking to me. Like I was like, no, you wash your face. Like I was like, there's no way I'm re- This book already makes me mad. Um, I, and I thought about writing something about her, but that actually would mean me reading the book. Um, so this, this woman actually wrote what I thought was a pretty, uh, actually a really thoughtful and, and theologically sound piece, Jen Oshman for the gospel coalition. And it's called girl follow Jesus, which I, um, agree with. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want us to get too like heavily moralistic with, Rachel Hollis and what she's doing. I mean, but I do think there's some really good points that this woman makes. I mean, she talks about, you know, uh, Rachel Hollis kind of does this whole, um, you know, setting goals thing. And she talks about like her goal was like to always fly first class, which (laughs) might not be like the most Christian goal to have. You know what I mean? Like it is a little and I, I loved her piece, so I think it's worth reading. The other piece, Dave, is the one that you sent to me um, that was on BuzzFeed, mm-hmm. and uh, which actually kind of goes into the fact that Rachel Hollis comes from this kind of, you know... Um, uh, Name it. How should Name we it. say this? Name it and claim <laughs> it kind of tradition. And so, like, I mean, she's, like, raised in a Pentecostal family with the tradition of preachers. And so and poor, she kind of... Br- and poor as well. And poor. From a very poor part exactly. of the country. And historically yes. poor. And, yeah. Yes. And so she brings some of that into this conversation as well. I don't know. I mean, I... Yeah, I don't like to to just like out and out take people down. Well, no, I do. I do like to do that, but it doesn't grow a part of myself that I enjoy. Mm. Um, but we do. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it does remind me a little bit of um, oh, her name's escaping me. The woman who wrote the piece, the book about leaning in, Cheryl Sandberg, mm-hmm. and how it just feels really, really. Um, ill-informed as to what the average woman's life is like. And it is sort of dark to me that Rachel Hollis has all of these Instagram followers and this like very, this curated messiness, right? That isn't real messiness. It's not real pain. It's not real struggle in so many ways. Um, or if it, if that, it was, then it is turned into something else, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I I I had wanted to write something, but I was really glad to see this piece from Gospel well, Coalition. Let me read a few paragraphs of what Jen Oshman has to say. Um, that she this is and she has read all these books. She says uh, Rachel Hollis wants you to believe in yourself, to take great pride in your hard work and accomplishment, to do so without shame and with gusto. It sounds great. She wants you to go hard and unapologetically after your dreams. Dreams. Hollis's message this time around is all that really matters is how bad you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. For a woman who claims Christ, this is Jen Oshman speaking, I'm afraid this is in direct opposition to his words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whatever would save, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Um, there is sort of a, Jesus says, deny yourself. Hollis says, believe in yourself. This faith in self only makes sense for a certain population in a certain mm-hmm. context. And this is the, the, the gist of a lot of uh, criticism here. I mean, how many people across history and across the globe can, quote, believe you're capable of making changes to become whatever kind of person you want to be? 
it's a cruel joke to say to the disabled, to the poor, and to the oppressed that you've got to decide right now that you could be whoever you want to be and achieve whatever you want to achieve. And Turner, in her BuzzFeed piece, quotes Hollis as saying, you are in charge of your own life, sister, and there's not one thing in it that you're not allowing to be there. While that may be, <laughs> I know. While that may be true for Hollis, a white woman in 21st century California, it's not realistic advice for much of the world. And I mean, then she goes on. This is what she says. She says she's very clear. She says, "I'm here to beg you to reject Hollis's teaching because it's both exhausting and damning. It's exhausting to believe in ourselves because that belief is only as good as we are." It will only suffice for as long as we have ample energy and good behavior and right thinking. And we already know that we get tired, we mess up, we fall short. We need more for this life than we're able to conjure up within. Ironically, believing in yourself will not lead to freedom or wholeness or to the pinnacle of your dreams, but rather to enslavement to self. Then she finishes by saying, contrary to the message of girl, stop apologizing. Becoming the woman we were meant to be starts with apologizing. It starts mm. with the humble acknowledgement. And this is sort of a kind of perfectly timed for Ash Wednesday and Lent, that we were made by a beautiful and holy God and that we rebel against God in countless ways every day. It starts with recognizing that Jesus died and rose to save us. And as once hopeless sinners who have been mercifully forgiven, it starts and continues and ends with treasuring Christ above all. I, okay, this is great. I, I do have to say something about this, though, I, because there's something in these pieces I didn't agree with. And that is this idea that she is that her message is for a specific subset who can meet sort of the the high standards she lays out for life. I want to say no one can meet those high standards. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if it's the 21st century. I don't care if it's the 25th century. No one can meet those yeah. standards, right? Like, I mean, I come to you as a woman who has had everyone in her house sick for the past two weeks who worked a 13-hour day yesterday, and the only reason my family ate is because my son is very chatty, and at the bus stop, he told everyone at the bus stop that we were sick. And so a stay at home mom brought us pizza last night. Like that's like, you know, I'm in that. I just want to say that, like I'm in that subset of who she's speaking to. And like, it's unmanageable even for me. Mm, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it, it's, it's, it's when they say enslaved. So I think, and to be generous here, because she is clearly saying something that a lot of people are dying to hear. And if you did grow up in a kind of uh, truly shame-based setting where you were always told how terrible you were and not to dream dreams and that not, you weren't capable of anything, maybe it is initially liberating to hear some of this stuff. So I don't want to like be... Page, I want to try to find a way into to affirm some of it. And yet it seems to be so completely the opposite of what we hear on Lent and in, right. in Lent and sort of the, 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 the self is limited. The self is a, is a right. problem and that we, we find our, we find hope through looking outside ourselves to God, to, you know, beyond our uh, limitations. And rather than sort of uh, Jesus as a, a cheerleader who, 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 helps us overcome our limitations. Uh, we, we find our, our wholeness in, in him, I think. RJ. Except just to name it before RJ talks. I mean, Jesus did tell us to wash our face on Ash Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so, to be fair, but only when, only she did when you're get fasting. that right. Only when you're so fasting, maybe she's like which a she's a big fa fan so of. So there you go. So that's, she's maybe that's super into she dieting, you know? So yeah. Redeemed. We've just redeemed Rachel Hollis. RJ, <laughs> thoughts? 
I got so many thoughts. Uh, well, I'll begin with this, and I, I speak somewhat at my own peril because I don't necessarily know of which I speak, but I've heard of which I speak. And I, I remember we had some good friends in New York who moved to a um, poor part of the city, and there was a church right across the street, and they were Christians, and they're like, well, we, we would love to meet these the people who are at this church and sort of become part of this community. And so they went to some kind of fellowship night on some weeknight, and they said it was the weirdest thing, because in this church, they put on a video about the founding couple of their denomination and all of their mansions and Rolls Royces and, mm. you know, private jets. And and the, the punchline was, you know, what do you give the couple who has everything? You give them more. And then they passed the plate. It was just this, this unbelievably health and wealth, prosperity gospel mm -hmm. message that was drawing people in one of the poorest parts of of New York City. And so I, this is not a message that that only it seems to have pretty broad appeal, you know, um, across sort of socioeconomic um, strata. So that was one thought. I, I also thought how the two articles, you know, the Gospel Coalition piece is coming from a more quote unquote conservative, um, personal sin-based approach. You no, know, we are all sinners, and and uh, you know that a relationship with Jesus begins with an apology. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Um, whereas the BuzzFeed piece starts from more quote-unquote liberal collective sin type of place. Like, how can you tell people who are subject to institutional generational racism or or economic oppression <laughs> to sort of you know um, choose choose their best life now to to borrow. Right. Another, you know, but they end up in the same place, which I find interesting. So it's like whether you see sin as more of a, a personal thing or a collective sin, a collective thing, both have the same criticism. And then, Sarah, I did think about, well, I'll say one more thing, uh, two more things. Um, to me, this is what genuine antinomianism looks like, you know, Ooh. that, that Mockingbird gets accused a lot of antinomianism because we talk so much about grace. You know, it's like, well, grace, 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 forgiveness, love, mercy. What about the law? What about these things we're supposed mm -hmm. to do? Um, and of course, our response to that is that we take a Pauline approach to the law, which is that, you know, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight through works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So the law was given not to make us better, but to show us how bad we are. But Rachel Hollis wants us to completely abandon all of that, right? That there mm -hmm. is no guilt. There is no shame. Right. There is no law. There is no nothing. It's, it's, genuine antinomianism in the way that the Corinthian church was, right? That Paul comes back at and says, you, you know, you, 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 you've already experienced the resurrection. You're the super apostles. You're doing whatever you want to do. And, and for the Corinthians, their sin was more sexual. You know, that was, that was that they were really into. I mean, money mm -hmm. too, but a lot of sex. Whereas for us as Americans, our sin is really financial and mm -hmm. sort of a success driven. And so I think this is what genuine antinomianism looks like when you say, you know, um, you should not feel bad for anything because there is there is no law. There is only um, achievement and uh, uh, sort of glory and and overcoming and which just doesn't jibe with the reality of human experience. You know, I mean, it's what we want to be true, but it isn't actually true. And then my last thought was, why? What is it about this message that is so easy for Christians specifically to fall into? Like why? Why do so many Christians who know the Bible, who know the New Testament, why is this so attractive? Um, and it, 
I don't know, it reminded me what Fitz Allison, you know, the retired great Episcopal Bishop of South Carolina retired and, and author as well said that, you know, all heresy can be broken into one of two categories. One is adoptionism and one is docetism. And adoptionism basically says that Jesus was just a man. He wasn't God. And if that's your heresy, then it's going to be all about, um, you know, making the world a better place and, and social justice and empowerment. And, you know, that, that the whole God thing, resurrection thing, miracle thing doesn't exist. It's just Jesus is a good moral right. teacher. But the right. second heresy is docetism, which is that Jesus basically wasn't a man. He was just, he was fully spirit. He floated above the earth. Um, and that's this heresy, right? That mm -hmm. you, you lose the humanity and it just mm -hmm. becomes a, sort of a dream of what we might be and a dream of what we wish we were um, and loses its groundedness in human experience. And, and you know, I get, because Paul talks, he says, you know, you are, who are in Christ are a new creation, right? You're a new creation. And we that is true, and we know it's true, and we want to believe it's true, but that doesn't mean that we are able to totally leave the old Adam behind, you know, mm -hmm. that we're still people, we're still sinners, we're still broken and fallen in spite of the fact that we have this new name and status before God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those are hard things to hold in tension, right? That sort of fully man, fully God thing that, and that we are sort of full, you know, simul justus peccator, right? Like simultaneously justified and sinner, simultaneously um, loved and broken. And to me, this, this writing seems to fall off the sort of docetist, um, you know, antinomian end of the spectrum. So... Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, the other thing I, I need to say here is there's a whole movement of women like her. And I would love to say that they all come from denominations that don't ordain women. But we have some of these women in the Episcopal Church. And they have no theological education. And they're given all kinds of advice. And they're writing theologically, whether they acknowledge that or not. And, um, you know, I would say for those denominations that don't ordain women, women, we're, we live in an era where women are going to, they're going to preach and speak no matter what. And the fact that they're not being given an education to do that is pretty dangerous. And, you know, but I mean, I, we have that in our own denomination. There's some really powerful figures that have big voices in the Episcopal Church and they have no theological education. Yeah. So anyway, that's, well, I'm, I'm, yeah. as we know, education solves every problem. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I hear I just, you, but I mean, I think, I'm sorry. That was, that was a bit snide. No, but you know no, what no. I, mean. I, he I hear you, but I, I do think there's something about bearing the mantle of a preacher, but not having been put through the, the process of becoming one that is a little, uh, maybe not great, you know, and maybe also not being in pastoral ministry because when you're, when yes. you have people coming to your office oh my gosh, RJ, and you're going to the hospitals it. and like, you, RJ, you know, it. it's just like you're teaching, 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 and you're not grounded in the reality yes. of people. Yes. And that's kind of what Paul said to the Corinthians. He's like, look around. You're a disaster. Yeah. Like pay yeah. attention. Like what yeah. you're saying about yourself does not jibe with the reality of your experience. So somebody send her to CPE. Like we're going to start a fund. Send Rachel Hollis to CPE. Well, except you have some stories about these kinds of churches doing, uh, you know, uh, hospital visitation, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do. And it is not cute. Yeah. So it's a very American phenomenon. It feels like to yes. me. Uh, I'm reminded of what Sarah wrote this morning about purity culture, and that there is. Uh, if she's talking about living a shame-free existence, what's appealing about that is that people feel a whole lot of shame, and a lot of yeah. yes. a lot of women who have been given a lot of double standards. I can't speak for women, but I can observe that it seems you know it some. seems to be <laughs> that we do need to think about what where the appeal is coming from, and yes. I think that there's yeah. a 
huge yes. miss. I mean, because there is what we're talking about is there is the law uh, reveals us to who we are in a proper sense of apology and humility and contrition. And as my dad says, it's not always better to be safe than sorry. It's actually always better to be sorry than safe. Um, but there is this sort of cultural shame. Excuse me, Paul's There all. is this cultural shame that uh, that somehow she's addressing, and I think we need to take that seriously. And I also think the prosperity gospel is um, it, it's it is a target that needs to be uh, you know deconstructed constantly. However, what the prosperity gospel gets right is that God is at work in people's lives and he's actually uh, not um, against you. And I think that that is what people who are living in poverty, uh, of course they want to hear that. And so how can we affirm that without... throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and yet this Rachel Hollis phenomenon, to me, who, uh, you know, knows that she's subject to all of the uh, pressures that and, you know, demands and, and, and fears and anxieties that we all are, to me it looks transparently um, a little gross. Uh, when it, it, Laura Turner writes in her BuzzFeed article, there is more than a hint of girl boss corporate feminism at work here as Hollis equates having, quote, made it with being able to drop a lot of cash on a Louis Vuitton bag using purchasing power as a path to self-realization. And she takes that brand of feminism a step further by marrying it with Christianity and what is essentially a Pinterest-worthy version of the prosperity gospel. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a, those are heavy, kind of very cutting words. And so how do we, uh, as Christians who really have compassion and care for people, how do we look to see what what is the itch that this is scratching? scratching. How do yeah. we, and I think that the one it's great to have the Gospel Coalition alongside BuzzFeed because it really does marry the two and say that um, uh, they both come to the same place. The belief in self, uh, unbridled individual agency is a recipe for a kind of not only disaster, but real hatred of yourself and other people. Despair. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. speaking of which, let's go into dieting. This is RJ. Mm. You said this along last week and I sort of uh, didn't roll my eyes, but I was like, I don't have time to read this now. And then I finally read it after Ethan wrote about it in our weekender. And it is unbelievable. The latest trend, uh, diet trend is not dieting. This is Amanda Mull writing in The Atlantic. She's writing about intuitive eating. She says, it's a theory that posits that calorie counting, carb avoiding, and waistline measuring are not only making people emotionally miserable, but contributing to many of the health problems previously attributed to simple overeating. Evelyn and Tribole and uh, Elisa Resch, a pair of dietitians in Southern California, developed intuitive eating to address um, problematic layers in dieting. They encourage people to do something that might sound chaotic or dangerous, or what we might say, the gospel. Eat what you want with no rules about what to eat, how much of it, or when. Intuitive eating has 10 tenets. And I, I, I'm sort of joking when I equate it with the gospel, but the most well-known is that no, no, no foods, Push it. no foods are off limits and that there's no such thing as quote, good or quote, bad food. That's in stark opposition to another school of food thought that's gained popularity on Instagram, which is clean eating. If you're going to eat clean, you need to pay careful attention to uh, any foods uh, place on a continuum of purity and eat only things that meet the strictest standards of unprocessed freshness. Eating today, Tribole says, has become this idea that the food on your fork can either kill you or cure you. It's gotten to a yep. point of almost religious fervor. Hashtag seculosity. Seculosity. Um, by comparison, intuitive eating sounds like permission to sit on your couch and eat pizza until you pass out. 
And this is that's this the gospel is what's so right funny. There. What Dave's all will be doing tonight. This is exactly <laughs> what people when you preach grace. Exactly what happens. They say you're telling people they can eat pizza on yes. their couch. And then listen to this. Experts finds that in the first week or two, new adherents of intuitive eating do sometimes binge on things they'd always been tried to skip. And once yep. someone hears the gospel, they oftentimes do go through a period of relative insanity. Um, but the vast majority of their clients quickly habituate to burgers or donuts and then crave the variety and nutrition represented by the healthy foods they once used as punishment. Telling yourself you can't have something, meanwhile, gives it undue power and allure. I, one person says, I didn't understand that the binges were created from the restriction. I mean, uh, guys, what do we what do we say about this? Uh, uh, except for just uh, read the article, I guess. It's... Um, I love this so much. <laughs> I just, there's so many rules. Well, and there was a whole thing we didn't talk about the Rachel Hollis stuff where she fat shames people. Like she's very into like, if you really care about yourself, you're, you know, you're going to diet in the right way. You're going to stick to your diet. I just, I, I think part of it is like, I'm from that generation and all our mothers have done Weight Watchers like forever. And they did Jazzercise and like, they were like, you know, the Jane Fonda kind of stuff. And it just makes me crazy. Like I, I can't, I, I, I can't do the, I can't do the diet stuff. So this is like amazing news to me. Um, I love it. Uh, RJ, what? RJ's an intuitive eater. I see him have dessert on the regular on just a Tuesday, just casual. He'll have like some kind of chicken fried steak covered in gravy and like a piece of cake. And he's like aging in reverse. I don't know why, but <laughs> let's not use RJ as an example for anything. Exactly. But it, it, this is so biblical. I mean, what does Paul say in mm -hmm. Romans? The law came in to increase the trespass. The law increases the trespass. I didn't what does understand it that the binges were created from the restriction. Unbelievable. Girl, read your Bible. Or, uh, I love or, it. In, or, in <laughs> or was it in Corinthians? You know, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things mm -hmm. are lawful, but not all. And that's, and that's the whole thing, right? Like, do, mm -hmm. do what you want. But at the end of the day, like, why do people like to the degree that people ever stop sinning, which they don't obviously, but maybe why do people stop like start sinning a little bit less because it sucks because, right. it, because it hurts. It hurts you. It hurts the people you yeah. love. It's maybe fun for like a little while, but it doesn't end well, you know? And at some point you're like, why am I, why am I constipated? Why am I or, inflicting all this pain? <laughs> why am I hurting why myself? Why am I infected? I mean, with this disease. But I think this is also just, I think it's just also true. Like, I, I can't remember when it was. It was a little while back. Um, my wife, like, was it? She just was tired and not feeling great. And then all of a sudden she, like, gets up and she she comes. She's like, I'm really craving cream of wheat. Why is that? Mm. I was like, maybe you're low in iron. And she, yeah. you know, and she gets online. She looks up, like, you know, anemia and she's like oh my god you know and goes through like two boxes of cream of wheat and it's like feels much better you know or like i've heard that women in countries where there's not like vitamins basically like eat dirt you know because yeah. they need them when they're pregnant to like get yeah. the minerals in their body and there is something mm -hmm. to be said or apparently that's also why pregnant women crave ice sarah did you crave ice when you were pregnant you ever crave ice? Yes. Yeah, that's a big yeah, thing yeah, and yeah. that actually comes from the need for minerals because ice this is what they think simulates rocks so like you, you don't eat rocks anymore, so you eat ice. But if you eat too much ice, then it just it gets you know it's worse. But pay attention to what you how you actually feel and what you actually want, and not right. the shame and the guilt and the you know all the other baggage that comes along with with the thing. And I've got to think there's got to be some connection between 
Amer like, I wonder when the health craze started and the fitness obsession and how that dovetailed with kind of like ama uh, Americans rising average weight. Like those have to be connected. Oh, that's an interesting Right, question. don't they? There, I'm sure yeah, there's yeah, been a yeah. study on that, but. Yeah. I just, <clears throat> I remember when food became not fun, like as a woman, yeah. I clearly remember. So you know, I remember being eight and going into like. This article at five um, years old. Something like like five years old girls start to yeah. associate food with body image. I think it's early and earlier. I mean, I can remember being eight years old and like, you know, my go-to at the gas station was like a Butterfinger <laughs> and a Sunkiss. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and, and, but I remember like the, just like the sadness of, of like being 11 and realizing there was some sort of connection I needed to be worried about between what I ate and what I looked like. Uh. And um, it's such a bummer. It's like, Oh I gosh. hope it, it, anyone just... who's listening knows that Sarah's house has been sick. So send lots of Butterfingers and Sunkiss. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the best. I, mean, I, I think that's the best care package a person could receive. Right. <laughs> when Jamie was young, she used to di she used to go buy a roll of like uh, Entenmann's powdered sugar donuts and go home and oh. dip them in ranch dressing. What? And just that was her that was her thing after school every that's day. I, mean, guys, I was like, that's amazing. I, uh, I resonate with this article on so many different levels, not just because I did yeah. just write that chapter on the seculosity of food, but you know, I totally use food to medicate myself. When I'm upset or when I'm uh, depressed, especially, you know, we talked about that last time. I uh, go and um, my wife goes, she wants an extra glass of wine, and I want Ben and Jerry's, and I want Dominic basically and it's just Aww. it's just my go-to um coping mechanism or what have you and it's so funny because it is not born out of the desire to eat this sort of tr you know saturated fats or whatever it is all that salt or all that sugar it is so emotional and um in this i love at the end he says suggesting that a healthy relationship with food or amanda mull writes this is possible without any rules or restrictions sounds risky to many people especially when it's misconstrued as a call to indulge destructive impulses rather than to understand and quiet them so for me it's i i've uh the the morality and the guilt surrounding food it's it's so ironic because you're usually trying to address some sense of guilt or some sense of um, pain with the food, which then creates more of it. And um, yeah. it's this vicious cycle when a much healthier relationship with food would be free of uh, the initial restrictions that, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, the, the initial sense of guilt that is, that is feeding it, pun intended. So it's, um, <clears throat> if I could uncouple food uh, it, it make make it could become nutrition uh, instead of um, medication. I wonder. I, I almost can't conceive of it, but I, mm. I get excited thinking about it. Um, but so when I diet, I which I do every June, it's just like nothing but restriction, and it never kind of works in the long term. But hey, I'd still rather have. Uh, I, I'd rather not do the work it would take to deal with like my deeper psychology around it than just do a month of just highly controlled uh, eating yeah. and have like a, a thinner. Uh, and you look great for those first two weeks of July. I mean, I look right? at, I'm sure that headshot was Beach taken. Bod. I think um, I was like, take my headshot in July. Take it. <laughs> Can't handle it in February. <laughs> I I do want to I do want to name though, like for people that are addicted yeah. to food, just how hard that is because it's yeah. not like 
alcohol or drugs or gambling or something that you can actually cut out of your life, you know, that you can be like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like you have to eat. And so it just does seem like dissimilar, you know, from Mm -hmm. other addictive behaviors. And I just can't imagine how hard that must be. One of the psychologists in there says that for a lot of people who are this deep into uh, terrible eating habits, and it does have a compulsive aspect where the biology needs to be dealt with first. They cannot simply switch mindsets. They need medication. Um, they need a substitute medication in order, and the, he's like, intuitive eating is sort of the second step. And um, uh, yeah, I thought that was wise. It was, seemed like wisdom. And it also seems like just this uh, amazing way of thinking about it during a time when everyone's talking about giving up certain things, restricting yourself in order to be in touch with... I, I think it also allows us... I mean, I, I, I do appreciate what both of you are saying about food as being... People being addicted to it or addicted to sort of that emotional need that gets temporarily met with food. But I love that this gives us freedom to like have positive emotional attachments to food because you know being from the south i grew up with grandmothers that made you know not not food i mean the kind of food they would make for breakfast you'd blow all through all your weight watchers points before 10 a.m you know what i mean there would be fried chicken and fried Mm. sausage and biscuits and all this kind of stuff praise god and (laughs) i know but i do there's a part of me especially when i was sort of like you know trying to be Skeletor bride before I got married, which mission accomplished. I look terrifying in my wedding pictures um, <laughs> that you sort of class classify that food. You'll never be skinnier or crazier than when you get married, but um, classify that food as like bad. And it, and it's not bad. I mean, there there is something really beautiful actually about the emotion behind food. And I think we've lost the positive part of that in a lot of this legalism that we have around it. Wow. I, I was also just... This is, goes back to the one, I was just thinking to myself, because here we are talking about letting go of guilt and shame around issues of food. And yet we also were just, I, at least I was kind of blasting Rachel Hollis for letting go of guilt and shame about sort of anything. <laughs> and is there a contradiction there? But I guess the difference is that, like, I'm so glad that Rachel's life is working out so well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like, praise God for that. She seems really happy. I guess maybe the problem is when she is getting on Instagram and writing books and telling everyone else that they should be exactly like her. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's the maybe that's the thing. Like you know, someone who has a quote unquote right relationship with food shouldn't be necessarily bragging about it and telling everyone that they should be like them. Right? Is that the problem? I don't know. I'm just I'm. Sent, I feel like I'm I wrote an attention. article that came out today where I did that, so I'm not. Sure <laughs> well, let's 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 finally let's kind of end with uh, what happens at the end of all of this. No matter how we, um, no matter how we come out in our dieting or our uh, shame-based achievements uh, or lack thereof, and this is uh, from a, a sermon that Sam Bush, uh, my our friend and contributor, uh, wrote last year on uh, Ash Wednesday. Uh, remember when Ash Wednesday was uh, coincided with Valentine's Day? It's uh, called yes. From the Very Intersection of Love and Death. But what I love is he, in the middle of it, he quotes those incredible Jerry Seinfeld videos. He says, A few years ago, Jerry Seinfeld accepted an award for an HBO special for which he was the guest of honor. During his acceptance speech, he said, The whole feeling in this room of reverence and honoring is the exact opposite of everything I have wanted my life to be about. People walking around the red carpet in these ridiculous outfits like they're senators from Krypton. I don't want you to think that I'm not honored. 
But it's just that awards are stupid. Every real estate office has some framed five-diamond presidential award by the desk. Every hotel check-in has some gold circle service thing. Every car salesman is a platinum jubilee winner, and it's all nonsense. The hotel stinks, the real estate person is stupid, and the only thing the car salesman is good at is ripping you off. And why? (laughs) Because awards don't mean a thing. And another time he was given a Clio award for advertising, he says, tomorrow... I don't know where this is going to be. It'll be somewhere holding up the award. Eventually, I'll be dead. Someone will just take it and sell it or throw it out. That's fine. I'm happy now. You have made me happy for the last five minutes of my life, and it will last until I get to the edge of this stage, and it hits me that this was all a bunch of nonsense. That's the most amazing uh, video forever. And Sam writes, as glad as I am that these speeches exist, if I take a look at my own life, it is a punch in the gut. I mean, who doesn't want to be recognized? We're all trying so hard. Whether it's most valuable employee, most informed person in the room, person who cares the most, most put together, most down to earth, we all have a closet full of awards and diplomas that tell us who we are. But Jerry Seinfeld is right. Jesus is right. These things are food for moths and rust. Ash Wednesday is here to remind us of the bitter truth that although we may put on a good show, God is not in the entertainment business. Worse than that, he sees behind the curtain of your life. To put it more bleakly, no matter how good a show you put on, death is waiting backstage. Sam says, I don't mean that as a threat, just that Ash Wednesday and Lent is here to remind us that death is real and that it's the only blade sharp enough to cut through our futile attempts to justify ourselves. It is a bonfire of the vanities. It is where everything you have and everything you are, your accomplishment, your charming disposition, your intellect, your connections, your sin, your anxieties, your shame, your very self, it's all burned up by the righteousness of God. Hebrew 12 puts it bluntly, our God is a consuming fire. And yet when the flames have subdued, in the soft glow of the embers, one thing remains, God's promise. It is the only thing that is not turned to ash. It is indestructible. God's promise is stronger than your accomplishments. It is stronger than your sin. It is stronger than you, and it is stronger than death. God might not be in the entertainment business, but he is in the business of death and resurrection. While we wanted to put on a show for him, he came to rip down the curtain that we hide behind. For when Christ died on the cross, the curtain of the temple, the one that kept God at a distance, was torn in two from top to bottom. And at that moment, God came backstage. He sees you, and not only that, he will reward you, but with something far better than a pat on the back or a raise or an award. He gives you himself. He gives you his life. In the ultimate act of love, he gives you his death in your place. I think that that's a very powerful statement to um, a world that is drunk on its own attempts to self-justify, whether that be through self-realization or dieting or um, writing books and releasing them uh, like I'm trying to do right now. It is a gut check, but it is also a uh, profound reminder that in that the place of failure and the place of uh, limitation is where we run smack dab into the cross. Um, Sarah, uh, RJ, where, where are you guys with this? I find tremendous freedom and hope in Sam's words, like for myself, for my children, you know, that for the things I want to accomplish, the things I want them to accomplish, what I want my life to be like, what I want their life to be like, that, um, it's all going to come to an end and it's going to end well, you know, regardless of what happens or doesn't happen 
on this side. And just another powerful reminder of the lengths to which we go as a culture to deny our mortality, to sort of shove death to the side and not look at it. And um, yeah, and the, the, the freedom and hope that we deny ourselves when we think that it's up to us to kind of justify our existences and, um, you know, make something of our lives. So I find thinking about death to be hopeful. As I've, I've said before, you know, Alex Large got that. I need to get that app on my phone that reminds me multiple times every day that I'm going to die and that nothing is that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really like awards. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> and praise and um you know all the things that firstborn daughters are um have neurotically embedded in them i really actually like those things a lot and so this is always a difficult ash wednesday is always difficult for me i mean as much as i talk about death and everything it's easier for you to say that to other people than it is for you to kind of accept it yourself um Ash Wednesday is always mm. weird. It's a, it's a, it's a very weird. It almost feels for me completely disconnected from Lent in some ways. Like, and that this first year, this year was the first year I was like, oh, that's why this is weird for me, you know. And there's that bizarre contrast with the texts that tell us to wash our know, face, to <laughs> right, to wash our face, and to, um, you know, to not tell people we're fasting, and you know, because God knows, you know you should do these things in secret because your father will reward you in secret. Basically God will reward, will reward you in secret. Um, so this year was the first year that I was like, so why are we, cause it's, it's a strange thing. And then you do this very public show of piety and, um, Nick Lannon, um, is so fun to follow. He's got a book coming awesome. out. Awesome. It's, so it's, like, it's available for pre order now. Life is impossible. Yes. And that's good news. We're going to hustle for a second. And now we're going to go back to talking about not hustling. <laughs> um, he, um, he, but no, but Nick's so awesome. And you, you should, everyone should get the book, especially if you're a pastor. Cause every time I hear him talk, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is such a pastor for pastors. But he talked about the, um, the ashes as being like a more like a scarlet letter and that they are like this symbol actually of our profound need and not at all really a symbol of piety. Mm. And I think that is, that's the first time Ash Wednesday's made sense mm. to me. Mm. Does, that, does that like, I was like, Oh, okay. Right. Like that's what this is because the, the, the idea of death and stuff is something I love and I talk about and I, and I RJ, I'm totally with you. Like I need to be reminded of it, especially at moments when like I'm getting accolades for something. Um, because there's a very jarring thing that happens when I go and I speak at a conference and like people come up and talk to me and it's like very exciting. And then I come home and there's like four baskets of laundry that have to be folded. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, right. This is who you are, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that that reminder that, um, that at the end of the day, all I have is my need of Jesus. Yeah. That's all I have to offer. Yeah. And what did Luther say? We bring we bring two things to the uh, human divine relationship: uh, sin and resistance. <laughs> Ooh, excuse me with a hot take. I like I like that. that. Well, I think uh, it's a wonderful thing. I, I'm also very much with you of, of two minds with about Ash Wednesday because although it is meant to be Christians putting themselves below other people to say that I am going to die and that in fact I essentially deserve to die. Um, it is at the same time, it's received. I don't 
I don't think that the intention, it's one of these classic Christian things where the intention and the way that's received are the polar opposite, because it does seem to be always received as that person is uh, better than me, um, or a separating an us versus them thing. So I don't know. I don't know how to balance the, the fact that it's beautiful and the scarlet letter that Nick talks about so profoundly and the fact that... Um, you know, every college student I talk to, when I ask them what their gut reaction is to people who walk around with ashes, it's like, oh, I didn't know, like, they've they've gotten their act together, they've checked that box today, and they've sort of like, mm. it, I feel like it is a public act of piety, and and at and, and at odds with what Jesus says. Um, and yet the beauty of it is is found in what, in, in its, the, the liturgy on Ash Wednesday is unbelievably powerful, and it is yes. so the opposite of everything. Um, it is the place, I think, where you, you do get reconciled with the fact that there are things to genuinely feel guilt and shame about, and yet Christ mm. has actually taken away that in his, so it's, it's, it's not, it's, the, the two articles that we've, we've referenced are sort of reconciled in that beautiful Ash Wednesday service, which I commend to people. But I also commend to people Nick's incredible book, which is called Life is Impossible. <laughs> and that's good news. He uh, he wrote to me to tell me that uh, if you search on Amazon, uh, I think there are eight books that come up that are nothing is impossible. And there's only one, his, that's called Life is Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I love Nick. I think it's got the it's a great book. It's very accessible and it also um it's got one of the coolest covers we've uh, we've ever done. It's a brilliant just like just cover. like Churchy. In fact, initially he thought it, it we were wondering if it looked too much like Churchy and so they they redesigned it a little bit to make it they took give me it off a the slightly cover. more comic know, book <laughs> feel. <laughs> Um, anyway, guys, uh, much love to you both, and we will talk to you in a couple weeks. You too, Dave. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com, and we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. 